0: It is a great joy and honor to get to uh, worship with you this morning. Everything that Randy said about me, I, I would say pretty much the same thing about him. God has just blessed me and my family continually through Randy and this church. Most of y'all don't even realize this, but we love y'all's church and we have prayed for your church over the years. Whenever you were going through the merge between the two churches, we are praying for y'all. We've been praying for the Ardmore Bible study ever since we first heard about that. And so this church means a great deal to us. And so we are, we've we been looking forward to being here today to worship with you and exalt Christ together with you. With all that being said, will you just join with me in prayer this morning? Father, what a joy it is to get to worship you with your people. Lord, we thank you for the truths that we've already sang this morning and just reveled in. The fact that uh, your wrath has been satisfied through Christ. God, thank you so much for Jesus. Thank you for this gospel that we've already sung about. And Lord, I pray that today we would just, just celebrate and revel in the gospel even more. Lord, I pray that today as we look into your word that your spirit would take your truth. And accomplish your purposes within all of us that ultimately as we, as we are in your word today, that your spirit would be guiding us into all the truth and making us to be more and more like Jesus. So Lord, have your way in us today and may Christ be glorified. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. Amen. you'd like to, if you have your copy of God's word or a copy of God's word near you, if you'd like to turn to the book of Psalms with me today, we're going to be in Psalm 96 in just a moment. When God's people gather every week, it is no ordinary gathering. People gather all the time. Every week, even every day, people are gathering together for different reasons and different things. Uh, People gather on sports teams. They they gather for um, maybe um, support groups. People even gather at bars. Uh, people gather all over the place, but there is no gathering like the gathering of God's people. Because whenever the people of gather, uh, whenever the people of God gather together, they aren't there for themselves. Ultimately, they are there to exalt Christ. They are there because of God. He is the central purpose of the gathering. Now, for some people, when they look at the church gathered, when they look at it, they see, well that, that just looks boring. And I think that when people have that view that, well I don't want to, I don't want to go to church, I don't want to, I don't want to go to those Sunday morning gatherings because they look boring. I think there's a few crossed wires there. I think that there's some miscommunication, there's some misunderstanding. Some things might be going wrong here. One, the person, they, if they have that view that this is just boring, it's not worth going, that person probably doesn't have a true desire to know God. Because if you truly desire to know God, you're going to want to be with His people. You're going to want to be where the Word of God is proclaimed so that you can know God more through the proclamation of the Word. Sunday morning gatherings at the local church, it shouldn't be boring. It should be a foretaste of what's to come. This is just... well the singing and the joy of the fellowship this morning this is just a a glimpse a, fore, a foretaste a shadow of the greatness of what's coming of being with christ and his people for all eternity how can that be boring but another problem that might be taking place if a person views the local church gathering together as boring it might be because some local churches don't understand what what is taking place when they gather there are many churches that miss the point of gathering together. They miss the point that the gathering of the local church should be to, to magnify Christ. It should be for the edification of the body of Christ. But if they aren't doing that, they're, they're missing the point, and therefore it could be boring for them. But with all this in mind, I just want to ask the question, Well, what is it supposed to look like when the local church gathers together? what is biblical worship? And to do this, we're going to look at Psalm 96. Now, the psalm uh, the psalm doesn't tell us who wrote this psalm, but most, uh, most throughout church history believe that David wrote this. Uh, it resembles many of the other psalms written by David. But we need to remember that the important thing about this psalm is not the author of the psalm. The important thing is the center and the object of worship in this psalm. God is at the center of this psalm. And so, this morning, we're going to look at three truths about worship from Psalm 96 to help us get a better understanding of what, what it looks like when the church comes together to worship. So if you would, uh, there in Psalm 96, let's stand together as we read this. Psalm 96. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord, bless his name, tell of his salvation from day to day. Declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous deeds among all the peoples. For the Lord is great and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods. For all the gods of the peoples are worthless idols. But the Lord made the heavens. Splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and beauty are in His sanctuary. Ascribe to the Lord's, O families of the peoples. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due His name. Bring an offering and come into His courts. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. Tremble before Him all the earth. Say among the nations, The Lord reigns. Yes, the world is established. It shall never be moved. He will judge the peoples with equity. Let the heavens be glad. Let the earth rejoice. Let the sea roar in all that fills it. Let the field exult in everything in it. Then shall all the trees of the forest sing for joy before the Lord. For He comes. For He comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness. And the peoples in His faithfulness. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Psalm 96 is a psalm of praise. This is, this is an invitation for all of the world to praise the Lord as the supreme king of the universe. And the psalm begins and ends with a universal call to worship this king. And the psalm gives us a great look at what it looks like when we come together to worship we see what biblical worship looks like when we look at this psalm. So what does it look like? Let's look at three truths about worship from this psalm. Truth number one is this. Worship is to be focused on God. When the people of God gather for corporate worship, God is to be at the center. Uh, The Bible knows nothing of man-centered worship. Uh, The Bible is... the. Constantly pointing us to biblical worship, which is God-centered worship. The psalm here begins with six imperatives to worship the Lord. We're commanded over and over again to sing to the Lord. We're commanded to bless His name. We're commanded to tell of His salvation, to declare His glory. Look at those first three verses with me and think about this. Verse 1, we are to sing to the Lord. We are to vocally praise God through song. Well, what exactly are we to sing? Tells us we are to sing a new song. More little literal translation of that might be to sing a song like never before or, or to sing an original song to the Lord. The psalmist could even be referring to this very psalm. Sing this song to the Lord. When, I'll tell you, whenever I read this and I see that, sing a new song, um, can, I'm automatically thinking about Revelation chapter 5, I don't know if you are as well, that new song. In Revelation chapter 5, we we are told that the song of heaven, the song of the redeemed, is this new song that they will sing. And the contents of that song proclaim the death of Christ to ransom His people. People from every nation, tribe, language. The new song of heaven is the gospel. Forever and ever, we will be singing and Singing and singing and singing the gospel. Is there any greater song to sing? I mean, let us never get over the gospel. Let us never get tired of singing this new song. We will sing of the finished work of Jesus now and forevermore. And the psalmist is telling us, sing a new song to the Lord. Well, who is to sing this song? Well, we're told all of the earth the world uh, the word of god is it's not for one people it is for all the peoples the worship of god is meant to be participated in by all of the earth every peoples everyone join in and lift your voice to the lord because he alone is worthy of all praise from all of creation and all of the peoples are commanded to sing to the lord and once again verse 2 we're commanded to sing again sing to the lord well, how are we to do this? or to bless His name. Sing with the intent of blessing God. Praise Him for who He is. We just, a moment ago, we sang a song just proclaiming who He is, that He is holy, holy, holy. I don't know about you. I, I've grown up in church my whole life. I, I like to tell people I've been in church since I was a fetus. I, I've been in church my whole life, but it wasn't until just a few years ago I really began to get a better understanding of even that word Holy. Do do we understand what we're saying when we sing that God is holy, holy, holy? That He, there is none like Him in His nature and character. That He is in a league of His own. Absolutely pure and righteous. Bless the Lord. Praise Him for who He is. Verbally praise the excellencies of this great God. Express adoration to him. That is what we are to do as we sing to the Lord. We are to bless his name. But the psalmist, he just continues. He he wants to drive this home. He keeps saying over and over again to sing, 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 bless. Tell. Tell of his salvation. Well, when do we do this? Does your Bible say the same as mine? From day to day? We are to continually be telling of His salvation. Telling of the salvation of our God. This is not an event that happens one day a week. This isn't something that happens from from 9.30 on Sunday to, to noon. It's not blocked off just one day a week for a certain amount of time. This is something we are to continually be doing. The life of a person who has experienced the salvation of our God is a person who is continually proclaiming that. Proclaiming the gospel is the lifestyle of the saved. We're to continually be proclaiming this. I mean, just think about this. When you experience something great, what do you do? You tell someone about it. I mean, it's just natural. Um, you, I'll never forget the, this is kind of a, a stupid illustration, but it really hits home with me. The first time I ever tried filet mignon which is basically steak with bacon wrapped around it, which is just another sign that there is a God and that he loves us very much. I couldn't quit talking about it. Where had this been all of my life? I couldn't quit talking about this. It's ironic that that's my first illustration after all. I do have two kids and a lovely wife, you know. I mean, <laughs> that's why we have a confession of sin and all that, you know. So, anywho. Um, but I experienced something great. My natural Natural result was I had to tell people about this. Have you tried this? If you've had, you know, wherever your kids are born, the natural thing is we tell people about it. I mean, even in, even in the little things, we hear a funny joke, what do we do? We, we want to tell our friends. We've experienced something that brings us joy, so we naturally have to share it. That's what, that's what joy does. Joy shares joy. I, I think that's an easy definition for evangelism right there. Is joy shares joy? Because if you've experienced the salvation of our God, the natural result is you've got to share it. You've got to get this out. Telling his salvation from day to day. Evangelism. This is what the church does. And evangelism, as we see right here in this passage, telling of his salvation from day to day, this is an act of worship. And as the church gathers to worship God, we sing, we bless the Lord, and we tell of His salvation. Church this morning, as we've been singing, as we gather together, as we, as we rejoice in the finished work of Jesus, we are proclaiming this to one another. You know, if there are people among us this morning who do not know Christ, evangelism is taking place. They are here, they are hearing this. The worship of the church, it is evangelism. Because we are proclaiming the salvation of our God. Look at verse 3. He just goes on. He, He carries on with this point. We are to declare His glory among the nations. We're to proclaim who our God is and what He has done. He, God has revealed Himself to us through His Word. That in itself is a loaded statement that we could spend all of the rest of this morning focusing on which would be a joy, but let's keep going. He, is, he has revealed himself to us through his word, and this revelation of God is what we declare. We declare who he is. We declare his glory. Now think about for the psalmist for a moment. What is he declaring? He's declaring the revelation of God up to that point in history, isn't he? He's declaring God as creator, as we see in Genesis 1. God as, as provider, as so you think about Abraham and Isaac going up the mountain to sacrifice. He's proclaiming God as holy. So we think about Moses at the burning bush. God as, as deliverer. God rescuing his people from Egypt. And bringing them through the waters on that dry land. Think of God as warrior. How God fought for his people at Jericho. As God fought for his people, as David faced the giant. He declared the glory of this great God. He declared God as God has been revealed up to that point in history. But Think about for us for a moment. Oh, how much greater do we have to declare? Because we have something that the psalmist didn't have at that point in time. We have the revelation of the cross and the empty tomb. We get to declare that our God, He is. He's not only these things, but He is also our substitute. He is also the one. He is our Savior, who has taken our place so that we can be made right with God. We proclaim the gospel as we pro- declare His glory among the nation, and the gospel is nothing less than the person and work of Jesus. That while we are great sinners, we have rebelled against God and deserve His wrath forever. God sent forth His Son into this world. He became like us. Although He is fully God, He became fully man. And He has fulfilled the law of God that we have failed to keep. While we have completely wrecked it and sinned every day of our lives, Jesus, every single second of His life, loved God and loved man as we were supposed to. And He fulfilled God's law. And then he laid down his life in our place as our substitute, bearing the full wrath of God that we should have endured forever and ever in hell. And we just sung about that in the song, Jesus, Thank You, Didn't We? Jesus, he endured this so that all who trust in him, all who repent and believe, can be made right with God. And this good news is of first importance, and this is what we proclaim. We tell of this salvation from day to day. We declare this glorious gospel among the nations. This, this is an act of worship as we do this. Now, where, where do we declare this? Where and to whom are we to tell of his salvation and declare his glory? We're to do it among the nations. Once again, we'll see this later in the psalm, that we are to proclaim among the nations that the Lord reigns. We must never forget that the gospel, it is an international message. It's not restricted. When it comes to the gospel, there are no closed countries. While there might be governments that might try to restrict the spread of the gospel, ultimately they can't. Because this message, it's an international message. It is to go out into all the people's There's an old hymn that puts it like this. I love this. Uh, It just says, We have heard the joyful sound. Jesus saves. Jesus saves. Spread the tidings all around. Jesus saves. Jesus saves. Bear the news to every land. Climb the steeps and cross the waves. Onward tis our Lord's command. Jesus saves. Jesus saves. To go to everyone and declare this gospel. To declare his glory among the nations. Now, as we, as we think about these imperatives, as we think about singing, blessing, telling, and declaring, as we think about worship, as we gather together, there, there's some different aspects or different facets of worship I think it's important for us to consider. And what I mean by that is, there, there's a vertical aspect to our worship And there's a horizontal aspect to our worship So there, There's a vertical aspect to our worship In the sense that we are to sing to the Lord As we worship We are, we are doing these things unto the Lord to, to honor and glorify Him There's one object of our worship And it is the Lord He is the focal point of our worship Biblical worship is God-centered worship but there's also a horizontal aspect to our worship. In that while we are doing these things unto the Lord to glorify Him, we are also, we are telling His salvation and declaring His glory among the peoples. As we worship, the people around us benefit from hearing the truth of God coming from our lips. We, we could think of it like this, that God is the object of our worship, but there are multiple audiences of our worship. Well, of course God is an audience in our worship. We as I said just a moment ago, we we do these things unto the Lord. Romans 12:1 shows us that we are to offer our bodies as a living sacrifice and we do that unto the Lord. But also, another audience of our worship is the church. The believers to your right and left, they they are participating in worship with you and as you sing unto the Lord, you are Encouraging and helping the brother and sister in Christ beside you. In fact, this is what we see in the New Testament. We are we're to address and sing to each other as we worship. Ephesians five nineteen tells us that spirit filled believers they're to address one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord in their heart. Colossians three sixteen tells us, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. Singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. When, when the church gathers to worship together, it is, it is putting Colossians 3.16 on display. We, we are to admonish and teach each other as we sing. This is why it's, what we sing is so important as we gather together. As we sing, we are edifying and encouraging the body of Christ. Now, at at the church that I serve at, that I'm an elder at, one of my main responsibilities is leading the music. And so this, this might be my soapbox and stuff, but I think it's important for us to think about these things. Um, Gordon Fee uh, once said, show me a church's songs and I'll show you their theology. If you want to know what a church believes, look at what they sing. Because what we sing matters. And, and I praise the Lord and thank the Lord for how we live in a time in history where the church is being flooded with with some great music. There is some great music to be sung, some biblically rich, theologically sound. People like the Keith and Kristen Getty, uh, Matt Papa and Matt Boswell, the sovereign, stuff coming from Sovereign Grace music. Uh, I really think that there's no excuse for bad music in the church now because God is blessing with, with so much good stuff now. And even, there's so many great hymns of the past for us to sing that God has preserved through the years. But we must be very careful because at the same time, there's a lot of, a lot of bad, unbiblical music circulating that's making its way into a lot of churches. Um, the church doesn't need vague, shallow songs about God that make us feel good. The church doesn't need man-centered songs about worship If if a song can be used about if a song is sung about Jesus and it could also be used about a girlfriend, there's something very wrong there Yet we're seeing a lot of that. Uh, I heard Bob Coughlin use this uh, an illustration similar to this that really helped me as I thought about music. He said, I could tell you about my wife. I could tell you she's wonderful. She's great. She's awesome. I love her. But I'm not telling you why she's wonderful, why she's great, why she's awesome. Yet that's how a lot of modern worship songs go. They give these vague descriptions of God and our love for Him, but they don't help us to worship God in light of who He has revealed Himself to be in Scripture. We need biblically rich songs filled with the deep truths of God. We need those to edify the body of Christ and to exalt our sovereign God. We, We need songs that magnify Christ and revel in the gospel. We don't need, we don't need shallow, popular praise songs from the radio. The church needs the risen Christ. And we need to continually be pointed to Him. And one of the best ways to do that is through the songs that we sing. Some of the greatest sermons you're ever going to remember are going to be preached by, by Ronnie or by Randy. Although I bet they've got some good ones. Some of the best sermons you're going to remember. They're gonna be on Christ the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. Christ alone, my hope is found, He is my, my source, my strength, my song. Those are, those are going to be the sermons that you remember. So we need to make sure that we have these biblically rich songs. Because as we sing these songs, the people around us are listening. We are edifying the body of Christ as we sing these things. The, the third audience, As we worship is the world. As we sing to the Lord, we are to declare his glory among the nations. Uh, Jesus put it like this in the Sermon on the Mount. He said, let your light shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. Tim Keller put it this way. He said, there is no better way to show skeptics the greatness of God and the beauty of his truth than through worship. Our worship is to be compelling to unbelievers. Our worship, is, first of all, it is to exalt God. We sing unto the Lord. But also as we worship, we are edifying the body of Christ around us. And we are witnessing to the lost world. Worship, it is to be focused on God. That is the first thing we see in this passage. Let's continue on. As we move into verses 4-9, through nine, we see that worship is to be fueled by God. What propels us to sing and to proclaim? Well, theology does. And theology is the study of God. And when our theology is good, solid, biblical theology, it is ultimately, it is always going to lead to doxology. It is going to lead to the worship of God. J.I. Packer once said, we should never forget that our theology is for doxology. The truest expression of trust in a great God will always be worship." And it will always be proper worship to praise God for being far greater than we can know. I love John Piper's definition of worship. He said this, he said, This is worship to act in a way that shows the heart's valuing of the glory of God and the name of Christ. Worship means conscientiously knowing and treasuring and showing the supreme worth and beauty of God. Truly knowing God, knowing him as he's revealed himself in his word and knowing who he is, his mighty works, it is gasoline on the fires of worship. But why? Why does, why is it so important? Why does theology fuel our worship? Why does the knowledge of God fuel our worship? Well, look at verse four. There's a small little word that makes all the difference. And it's that word for. Or rather because. We sing to the Lord. We proclaim among the nations. Because. Great is the Lord. The Lord is great. As we've sung. He is holy. There is none like Him. There is none like Him in power. In majesty or purity. He is remarkable in magnitude and awesomeness. Because of this great God. Because this great God is our God, we worship Him. And this is the essence of of biblical worship. God has revealed Himself. He's revealed Himself to be this great God, and therefore we respond in worship. We respond by singing, by blessing, by telling, by declaring. Matt Papa wrote this once. He said, worship is a response You see something magnificent, then you respond in praise or adoration of that thing. That is worship. You behold or experience some glory, whether it is the glory of a slam dunk, the glory of a sunset, the glory of a rock band, or the glory of God. And then quite naturally, you overflow with awe. That's what happens when we worship. We've beheld the revelation of this God, and the result is awe. The result is, we can't help but to sing. We worship the Lord for He is great. But the, the psalmist, he goes on to say, and He is greatly to be praised. He is exceedingly worthy of praise. There is only one person in the universe that deserves never-ending worship, and it is this great God alone. He alone is worthy God is so greatly to be praised that Jesus instructs us that the greatest commandment of all the commandments is that you love God with every ounce of your being. That you love God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Every part of your life, you love God with it. Your life is to be consumed with love for God because He alone is worthy. He is great and greatly to be praised. But not only that, we see in this passage, He is to be feared above all God's. Now, many people will view God and they'll, they'll view God flippantly and they'll, they'll call God names like, well, he's the man upstairs. Or he's the big guy. Jesus is my homeboy. Nicknames like that for God just show the ignorance of man, don't they? Never in Scripture do you see anyone approach God flippantly like this. In fact, you see the exact opposite. One of Jesus' best friends as he walked this earth, John. When John saw Jesus again in Revelation chapter 1, John passed out. John became like a dead man. When Isaiah sees God, the Lord sitting on his throne, what happens to Isaiah? He screams out, woe is me, I'm ruined, I am a dead man. Every time that someone encounters this God, there is no flippancy. There is holy terror and fear of this God. Because the Lord, He is awesome and terrifying. We're to revere the Lord. Fear the Lord. Don't fear the gods of the people. Fear the Lord. Well, why is the Lord to be feared above other gods? What does the scripture say? He's to be feared above all gods. Why? There's that little word again in verse five. Four. Because the gods of the people, they're worthless idols. They're a piece of trash. You don't fear or give reverence to a wooden statue. That would be ridiculous, wouldn't it? Likewise, you don't give fear or reverence to a little device you hold in your hand. Or a box that sits in your house in a strategic spot in your living room. You don't give fear or reverence to those things. Those things are worthless idols. They're unimpressive. They're insignificant. They're They're vain. Instead, we are to fear the Lord because He made the heavens. He is not a created thing. William Palmer said this in his commentary on the passage. He said, God's supremacy is based upon His being Creator. The idol was a mere dumb, senseless thing, but not so with Jehovah. The idols of the nation are stupid, worthless things, but not so with Jehovah, not so with our God. These idols, they are created. Keyword created. Our God is creator. The cosmos are His creation. The heavens are His handiwork. This God, creator God is worthy of all doxology. He's worthy of all worship. He is ever glorious and magnificent. He is the essence of true beauty. And He radiates majestic greatness. Look at what the psalmist says. He says, Splendor and majesty are before Him. Always and continually. He is glorious. And we sing to the Lord because of who He is and what He has done. And as we grow in our understanding of who this God is, as we grow in our theology, it should propel our doxology. In other words... The more we truly know of who this God is, the more we should be rightly worshiping Him and proclaiming Him. We are to ascribe to the Lord, as we see in verse 7 and 8. And this is a command to give to the Lord. We are to give to the Lord. Who's to ascribe? Well, once again, this is a call to everyone. All the families of the peoples, all the earth are to give to the Lord, to join in and worship this great God. Well, what are we to give to Him? Glory and strength. We are to recognize His power, His strength. This is no ordinary person that we are ascribing to. This is no ordinary person that we worship. This is God Almighty and none compared to Him. So give unto the Lord. Well, what are we to give to Him? What are we to ascribe to the Lord? Verse 8 shows us that we are to ascribe the glory to His name. I can't help but just ask the question, well, how much glory is due to His name? Well, infinite glory. He he is worthy of all glory, never ending glory and adoration. This is going to take us a little while, isn't it? Well, that's all right because we got, we got forever to do this. Forever and ever we will glorify the one who is worthy of all glory honor and praise we are to bring an offering and come into his courts now once again as we are looking at this we see that this isn't this isn't an offering or a sacrifice for sin that's being referred to right here this is an offering of praise he's continuing with the theme of we are to bring an offering of praise uh, to worship our great king But I can't help but to think about the implications of this for believers today. The sacrifice for sin has been paid for at the cross. Christ paid it all for us at the cross. Therefore, we are to bring an offering to the Lord. What does that offering look like? Well, Paul Mm -hmm. describes that. I referenced it earlier in Romans chapter 12 here. He says, I urge you. In light of the mercies of God to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy, pleasing to God. This is your act of worship, your spiritual act of worship. In light of what Christ has paid for us, what is the offering of praise that we bring? We bring it all. I mean, how can I hold back anything from the one who gave everything for me? Bring it all to the Lord joyfully, thankfully, bring your offering into the Lord. And as we come and we bring these offerings, we worship reverently. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. As we come to worship the Lord together, we don't, we don't rush in like fools. The I believe he was a British poet, Alexander Pope. He once said that fools rush in where angels fear to tread. I fear that way too many times I've been one of those fools. Don't rush in like a fool, but come reverently to worship the King. And we are to worship Him in the splendor of holiness. As Christians, we are declared holy in Christ. We are, yes, we are still sinners, but we have been justified and we've been given the righteousness of Christ. The imputed righteousness of Him. and imputed holiness but at the same time we are to strive to live lives of holiness. Hebrews 12:14 tells us to strive after holiness. And as we come to worship, we should come with the mindset that we are yes, we are holy in Christ, but I should strive for holiness as well. And too often it's easy for us to get caught up in outward appearances whenever it comes to corporate worship. Appearance of where where we are, appearance of what we're wearing. But we should never forget that that's not, that shouldn't be our main concern when we come to worship. Charles Spurgeon once wrote this concerning the splendor of holiness. He said, this is the only beauty which God cares for in our public services. And it is one for which no other can compensate. Beauty of architecture and apparel he does not regard. Moral and spiritual beauty is that which is that in which his soul delighteth. Holiness is the royal apparel of His servitors. So the ultimate dress code for worship is not a suit and tie, but rather it is holiness. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. Revere Him. So as, we, as we've seen so far, we see that biblical worship, it is centered on God. But also it is fueled by God. But finally, as we look at the last portion of this passage, we see that biblical worship, it issues a call for all of creation to come and worship. We saw back in verse 3 that we're to go among the nations and verbally proclaim something. But now here we see that we're to say among the nations that the Lord reigns. And this is good news. In light of who He is and what He has done, This is very good news that the Lord reigns. And the mission of God is that His people go and proclaim the gospel to all the nations. And that nowhere is off limits. Nowhere. And truly knowing this God and having experienced His marvelous saving grace, it should cause us to go and proclaim. The message is the rule and reign of God that the Lord reigns. That He has sovereign authority over history and all nations, and that He will judge with equity. He will judge with uprightness and righteousness. That's what we are coming, we're going, and proclaiming. And look there in verse eleven, we see that this psalm it ends with a universal call for creation to join in with with humanity, and worship this great God. Let the heavens, let the seas, let the forest, let, let everything that fills all these places, let, they, let them rejoice and sing for joy. From the small clownfish to the great white whale. To, from the grasshopper to the cows and horses in the field. From the fresh daisies to the gigantic redwood forest. Let all of creation praise this God. Creation rejoices because the Lord comes to judge the earth. And this is a cause for great joy. In Romans chapter 8, we're told that creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. Creation is longing for the return of Christ and His rule and reign and the revealing of the sons of God. And Christians, we have every reason to join in with creation and celebrate and rejoice because Jesus reigns. He's the King of Kings and Lord of Lords and He is coming again. Shouldn't we have even more reason than creation to rejoice? I'm not going to get outsung by a tree, okay? I don't know about you. We, we have way more reason to rejoice. Christ, He is, He's died, He's risen, He is coming again and He will rule and reign forever. And today, if you are in Christ, look forward to his coming with great expectation. Look forward to his coming and go and proclaim to the nations who this God is and what he has done. But today, if you were outside of Christ you, and you've never truly turned from your sin and trusted Christ alone to save you, then the coming of Christ should be a reason of great fear for you. Because as we see in this passage, he is coming to judge. And he will judge with equity. He is not an unjust judge. He will, he, will not, he will not punish unjustly. He will judge righteously and faithfully. And if you remain in your rebellion to God and remain in your sin outside of Christ, He will give you the judgment that you deserve and nothing less. You will be separated from God for all eternity. In hell. If you are outside of Christ today, I plead with you and I urge you to turn away from your rebellion to God and turn to Christ. Look to Jesus and live. Jesus, He has done what you cannot do. He has fulfilled God's law. And He has suffered the full wrath of God for His people at the cross. So that all who turn to Him by faith be forgiven of all of their sins, be made right with God, so i I plead with you, and I urge you to look to Christ and trust him before it is too late this morning we've seen what biblical worship looks like, we've seen how it is god centered how it is fueled by God, how biblical worship it, it extends this call to to all of creation to come and worship this great God well how What do we do with this knowledge? How do we live in light of what we see in this passage? I want to share three things just very briefly. Number one, know the Lord. Know the Lord. Make sure you have good, right theology. God has revealed himself to us in this book. He shows us who he is, what he is like, what he has done. Live in the word of God so that you can have good, solid theology. Because the knowledge of God, just knowing God, is not an end in itself. It should ultimately lead you to worship and to witness. Kevin DeYoung put it like this. He said, the purpose of all of this theology is not only for us to know, but that we might go. If you're going to tell others about Jesus, you need to know who this Jesus is need to know what He has accomplished. Know the Lord. But not only that, worship the Lord. Sing to the Lord. Bless His name. Tell of His salvation from day to day. Declare His glory among the nations. Worship Him in light of who He's revealed Himself to be. Knowing the Lord leads to true worship of Him. So lift up your voice and bless the Lord. And finally, Proclaim the Lord. We have good news. We have the greatest message in all of the universe. We cannot keep this to ourselves. Therefore, we must go and proclaim this great God to those who do not yet know him, to those who have never heard of this great God and this great gospel. This is our glorious mission that we get to be a part of. We've been entrusted with this great message. So let us go and proclaim it. Know the Lord, worship the Lord, proclaim the Lord. For the Lord is great and greatly to be praised. Would you pray with me? Oh, great God, thank you for your word. For you have revealed yourself to us through your word so that we might truly know you. God, thank you. It is just another sign of your grace towards very undeserving people. You didn't have to reveal yourself to us. You would have been just to just leave us in our sin. You have been just to leave us where we were. To one day suffer your wrath. God, thank you for this grace of your word that you would reveal yourself to us. Oh God, we pray that you would give us a greater passion and a greater desire for your word, a greater passion to know you more and more through your word. And Lord, as we know you more, may we love you more. May we worship you more. May we serve you more. Father, thank you once again for sending your son to take our place so that we could be made right with you. Thank you for giving us your spirit. God, help us to live in light of what you've revealed in your word. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.